Good. Joanna, Angie? And Can you hear me now? Now, now it sounds better. Yeah, can you hear me now? <clears throat> so good after wow. Oh, good. Oh, oh, wow. Boy, this sounds uh, I can be I can be um you know at a uh, I, I've never wanted to be, you know, like a uh, a rock star, you know, standing up in front of everybody, the microphone, things, whoa, whoa, whoa. But you know, when you, you have a big microphone like this, it gives you such a big sound. It's like, wow, sound sounds amazing. Um, so uh, I, uh, unlike the last couple of times, we spent our whole time talking about the, the Israel-Hamas war, and I would like to point out just a few things and then go on to a different subject. Uh, last time we spoke about Poland, if you recall, um, today is one month since the um, the uh, Hamas attack on Israel. And in one day, they killed something like 1,400 people. So um, I think that they did a calculation to say that since the state of Israel was established, before that day, there haven't been 1,400 civilians killed altogether in any kind of, um, you know, the combination of all the attacks, intifadas, uh, individual uh, stabbings, and all that kind of thing. So this was a day that will be really marked on the Israeli psyche for a very, very long time. And as I said before, that the uh, ripple effects of something like this takes time to spread, but they've already spread all around the world. Um, <clears throat> there is, of course, incessant coverage of the war on, on the major media, and this coverage, of course, has an effect on how people feel and perceive the whole situation. But to look at it from a practical point of view, 
Uh, many countries have already recalled their ambassadors in Israel, including Jordan, who is Israel's kind of closest neighbor in a sense, uh, Bahrain, which is a country which newly recognized Israel as part of the Abraham Accords, and then a whole collection of countries, including some of the more left-wing countries that have recently elected left-wing governments, such as Chile, Bolivia, Honduras, uh, Venezuela, of course, um, and uh, um, Turkey, uh, Israel recalled its ambassadors from Turkey, um, and uh, several other ones, which uh, um, don't come to mind right at this moment, but um, the uh, kind of, let's say, the, the reaction of the leaders or the reaction of the people uh, to watching these events have led to these diplomatic breaks. And um, in some cases, these breaks are not all that important to Israel. Um, I don't think Israel's trade with Honduras or Bolivia is going to make an enormous difference in its, uh, you know, standard of living. But in other cases, like the case of Jordan or the case of Bahrain, um, there is a very significant um, effect on, on, on the breakage of ties between these countries. Um, of course, another effect are individual attacks on Jewish communities abroad. And if you haven't heard already, there was a firebomb in the Dalai uh, Dezormo at the uh, the Tikva uh, Synagogue and uh, the Jewish Community Center on Roger Pimo. And, um, you know, this is only just, uh, you know, one example of many that have been uh, reported in all across the U.S., and in Europe as well. Uh, you know, I can tell you that the amount of um, security, which is now being um, practiced at Jewish schools and at the Jewish community centers, uh, is much higher than it was before. So this has an effect on Jewish communities, but also Muslims have been attacked uh, in America. Um, there was this boy who was killed a uh, six-year-old boy uh, because, uh, you know, his landlord uh, was upset about what happened in Hamas. And, and the, the attacks on Muslims in Canada and in the U.S. aren't necessarily done by Jews. I mean, it's, uh, uh, in fact, it's more likely not than, than they are being done by Jews. There was a, uh, there was a, um, a published report saying that Jews consist of 2.4% of the U.S. population, but 60% of the religious attacks, in other words, attacks done on because of religion, have been done on Jews. So um, I was speaking yesterday to my cousin, who is, I would say, on the very, in, she lives in, um, she lives in uh, San Francisco, uh, she's an extremely left-wing um, in her political orientation. Uh, and uh, I was so pleasantly surprised to hear that she was, she was surprised at how many left-wing people are attacking Jews, um, you know, over this, uh, these events. 
And, you know, of course, if you know enough, you know not to be surprised at all. But her whole life has been in that milieu, and then all of a sudden she says, you know, that the Jews are being attacked for what Israel is doing, even uh, the gas spirit. You know, it, like I said, it's just it's just an, an example of how when you uh, when something starts that has international implications, these implications spread farther and farther. Uh, I think another important point to to uh, to know is a speech that was given by Mr. Netanyahu yesterday when he said that um, Israel is not interested in leaving Gaza. But that once Israel attacks and takes over the whole place, they will be in charge of security for an indeterminate amount of time. So that tells you that Israel is interested in, not in just a quick uh, kind of attack and retreat, which they've done several times since 2006, but that they want to be in charge to make sure that no further attacks happen uh, on Israel, even if they may not be the ones who are running the nuts and bolts of the gas strip. They're not in charge of uh, the garbage collection and road, road uh, maintenance, but they want to be in charge of security uh, for a long time. But that is a step that is far, far, far in the future. Um, because the military campaign is a month old, and uh, Israel estimates that this campaign can be lasting up to six months. So they're not looking for any quick scores or quick victories, because they know themselves that the, the, uh, to control the entire territory, including the 300 miles of tunnels, is quite a, a long-term project. If you check out the BBC today, they've got a cameraman going down into the tunnels to show you how sophisticated, how well-equipped, how well-armed, how well-protected they are. So uh, this is, uh, and how difficult it is for uh, someone who doesn't know those tunnels to get in there. Um, they, uh, you know, you quickly lose your sense of direction. There's no communication inside the tunnels you can't, um, uh, in other words, use your cell phones in the tunnels to communicate with the outside world to say, okay, here's where I'm going, and this leads here, and this leads there. So it's, uh, and they're dark, completely dark. And the fear of hostages being in there is what would prevent Israel from, say, using uh, some sort of a flooding technique or using some sort of a... Uh, um, what would you call it, a, uh, a gas that, that blacks everybody out. Uh, so they can't do any of those techniques that would be the easiest ones to do. So to get in there and fight uh, the Hamas by hand is, is, is kind of, uh, you know, the most dangerous operation you could have. Anyways, so this is an ongoing story. It's continuing to go on. And, you know, just like I said before, and as you well realize, um, all the fighting is in Gaza, all the casualties are in Gaza, and um, the vast majority of casualties are civilians, and uh, according to Hamas, there's been uh, 10,000 civilians killed already. But also according to Hamas, which you might have heard about, <clears throat> uh, one of the heads of Hamas said that, Israel, that Hamas did not kill any civilians in the attack on Israel. 
And uh, BBC, of all networks, said that this is BS because obviously their Hamas's own uh, camera showed that they did do that. So it goes to show. So, so then the lesson is well, if you don't believe the head of Hamas on that, why would you believe them on anything else? So, uh, anyway, that's the story. Um, so let's just, uh, we'll change topics for now. Let's just talk, let's talk about uh, what's happening in the U.S. today. Uh, it's a very important day in American politics because the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November is election day. And there's always elections going on in November in the United States. The, the years that end with uh, odd numbers are the quieter years. The years that end with even numbers are the busier years. So uh, 2022 was the midterm inter election. 2020 was the presidential election. 2024 will be presidential election and congressional elections. But even in the odd ending years like 2023, uh, there are always elections for various reasons because that's the way the calendar works out in certain states. And uh, any kind of local initiative for an election is held always in November. So it's it's a busy it's a busy year. And also November marks one year from now the U.S. presidential elections will take place. Uh, any of you who have read the New York Times this week saw a most disturbing poll, uh, disturbing for the Democrats that is showing that uh, President Trump is ahead in five out of the six uh, closest states that, that determined the results of the last election. And those states were Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, and Michigan, uh, Georgia, correct, Georgia. So in all those states, President Trump is now ahead. The other, the other state that he's not ahead in is Wisconsin. So those are the six close states, the, the, uh, the states that were the closest uh, results. And in the last election, the Democrats won all of those states. And this time, they seem to be behind by, by either small amounts or large amounts, depending on which state it is. And this is a, a poll done by the New York Times and Siena uh, Research, which are reliable polls. And um, it's, uh, it's something that should make everyone's heads sit up and make the both Republicans and the Democrats um, plan accordingly. So why is the why has the why is the poll turned out the way it did? And is it significant? So the first question, listening to all the commentators on on uh, the different networks, they say, well basically a poll done one year away from an election is not really significant because People um, are uh, prone to change their minds uh, the closer the election gets. But on the other hand, it shows some, you know, um, it shows that 
people are not happy with the current administration and especially not happy with Biden. Uh, another question would be, um, if, if you had three choices, would you vote for President Trump? Would you vote for President uh, Biden? Or none of the above? The none of the above would get the most support because people are just not happy with either of these two um, geriatric candidates. One is uh, 77 years old and one is 80 years old. And you know, hey, we're all in this room, we're all in our 70s plus. So we don't see anything wrong with that. But uh, we don't represent the majority of voters. And um, the majority of voters uh, have seen these two faces before and are not super impressed with either. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that's the reason why the Democrats especially have their work cut out for them because um, it seems quite clear that Mr. Trump is going to win the nomination for the Republican Party. Uh, if you're interested, there's a debate tomorrow night on television between the, all the candidates except for Mr. Trump. Uh, so it's as if they're all kind of blowing in the wind. But he's got 42% of the uh, Republican support just by himself. And all the other candidates mixed together have the other 58%. Um, Nikki Haley and DeSantis, those two candidates are the strongest two of his opponents. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, as far as President Trump is concerned, why should he show up to uh, a debate when all the other ones would be attacking him? He figures, I'm, I'm so far ahead in the lead, why should I risk my lead by saying something that might come back against me? Trump is best at giving speeches, at um, you know, throwing out lines that are applause lines, at, at being uh, you know strong and vindictive. Um, he's not good when when commentators try to ask him questions and pin him down. He was in court yesterday. The judge was trying to ask him questions and pin him down. And this is a judge who could give him a contempt of court or a fine. And Trump just went ahead and just gave his usual warning. So, um, you know, it just goes to show that it, if it's worked in the past for him, it will work in the future. Why are America, why are, first of all, let's answer this question. If, if these results of these polls are correct, where did Biden lose the most support? That's a good question for him. And where he lost the most support is among Black and Latino voters. Um, and the youth. And the youth. But um, you could say that youth, um, in terms of turnout to vote, are less likely to vote on average than other people. But on the other hand, if there's an issue that interests them and motivates them, they're more likely to turn out than other people. We saw that, I referred to the Polish election, but I didn't mention the turnout rate. 
The turnout rate among the youth in Poland was higher than the turnout rate of people over 65. And the turnout rate in the cities was higher than the turnout rate in the countryside. So that just tells you how motivated the opponents were uh, to uh, change the direction of the government. Uh, meantime, <clears throat> just another footnote there that the, the president has asked the leader of the uh, Law and Justice Party, in other words, the party that was in power up until now, to, to form a government because they won the most votes, but they're not going to be able to form a government. So that will be the end of that. So coming back to the states, and so why is it that black voters and Latino voters and young voters are not enthusiastic about uh, President Biden's uh, second uh, term? You know, there's uh, the main, one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons is the pressure in the economy. So uh, the continuing high inflation um, um, trend in the U.S. The fact that inflation is that wage increases are not keeping up with inflation on an average means that um, some people's standard of living are going down. And most importantly is the question of housing where for someone, especially a young person, a young couple to buy a house today in the U.S., uh, or in Canada, is a far more expensive proposition than it used to be because of the combination of high interest rates and high housing prices. So those that combination means that your out-of-pocket expenses are really high. So let's let, let's just give a kind of a basic idea of what that's all about. If I'm not mistaken, the um, the current Median house price in the U.S. is close to $400,000, meaning that half the houses sell for more than that and half sell for less than that. Now, if you, especially if you're on the West Coast or the East Coast, those prices are, are not relevant because those the prices on both coasts are way higher than $400,000. Um, but let's take $500,000 as, as a nice number. And if you were going to buy a house for 500000 and you put down a 20% down payment, that means that you're borrowing 400000 At 7%, that's $28,000 of interest only per year. Now, in, in order to make that $28,000, you have to earn somewhere like in order just, just, just to make your interest payments on your mortgage. Um, the uh, median salary in the U.S. is somewhere in the high 50s. In other words, in the high 50,000s is what an average salary is. It's the median salary. Um, I think it's even, you know, an average is even worse than a median, but I think the average salary in the U.S. is fifty-eight dollars to $62,000 a year. So after taking off taxes, that person could barely afford to make the, the mortgage payments on an average house. That doesn't mean, you know, not counting all your other expenses, even involving running the house, which are the insurance, the taxes, maintenance, 
um, uh, you know, utilities, etc. So that's why, that's why people, and especially young people, are feeling pressure to uh, keep up with the with the increased inflation and interest rates that are in this, in, you know, in, in both Canada and the U.S. today. And it might explain why uh, here in Canada. Uh, the Liberals are way behind the polls, and it may also explain why this poll shows that, that the Democrats are way behind. Um, so that's one explanation. Now, why Latinos and Blacks in particular? Why would they fall off the Democratic lag? And um, you have an answer? Yes, okay. Let's hear Um, yeah, well, that's well, I, I would also I would add also that this this demographic is in the lower income of the uh, you know of the American population, and any economic pressure that's felt um, by by the lower um, the lower third of, of income is going to be felt even more by black and Latino voters. So that's one one. Um, there's other explanations as well, as you said, uh, you know, the migrant crisis maybe one, uh, the, um, the, uh, the turning away of, from affirmative action by the uh, court decisions uh, would be affecting Black and young people in particular, and in general, in general. People just get fed up nowadays with the incumbents. Whoever, whoever is in, and people's people's patience and people's um, uh, tolerance in a democracy is affected by the very strong media presence, by the internet, by social media, by all the criticisms that come up instantly over any. Um, now that doesn't mean. That these people are going to end up voting for the Republicans. That's that's an unlikely, an unlikely outcome. But it may mean that they just won't vote, which is uh, harmful in and of itself. Because if the other side, if the Republicans are more motivated to vote, to, to get Trump back into office, to take revenge on the Democrats for all of what they've done to prosecute people. Um, to uh, charge all those people who uh, demonstrated or rioted in January 6th, the Trump's army tried to overturn the election. Um, then, you know, whoever has the most motivated voters is going to win the, the election. So uh, um, I personally, for what it's worth, and it's not worth anything, I predict that if Trump and Biden ran against each other again, that Biden would win the election. But, you know, it's just kind of maybe the way, um, you know, the, the, the way I perceive the world may not be the way other people perceive the world. But let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen today, because there are some 
very significant uh, choices that people today have to make in the United States. The most significant of which is in the referendum in Ohio on abortion rights. The one ace in the hole that the Democrats have in the US political scene is that they strongly believe in the freedom of choice. And most people, irregardless of politics, but if you pull people in the United States and ask them, are you in favor of freedom of choice or are you against freedom of choice? Most people would say, I'm in favor of freedom of choice. Whether this, uh, and can this issue translate into votes for the Democrats is a big question. And so far, it seems that it does. Certainly, people are, are strongly in favor of the right of a woman to choose uh, her own uh, destiny when it comes to giving birth or not. So one of the, the, um, the, the questions on the ballot today is in the state of Ohio. The state of Ohio used to be, used to be a toss-up state. It used to be a state where both Republicans and Democrats have won elections. But over the last 10 years or so, it's turned much more to being a Republican uh, state. And the reason for that is the, um, the relative decline of manufacturing in that state, which was once one of the highest manufacturing states in the United States, the decline of blue collar sort of power in politics and the transformation of the working white working class into supporters of the Republicans rather than supporters of the Democrats. And the messaging that Mongols focus is that the whole world is against the United States. The whole world is against you. Um, that outside people are stealing your jobs. China, Vietnam, all kinds of places that um, uh, have cheap workers who, who, who break the rules, uh, allowed uh, by the uh, Democrats to have freer trade, uh, that uh, the Trump's effort to put tariffs on every kind of import is the only way that your jobs are being protected. And um, the Democrats are people who don't understand the working class, who aren't working class themselves, who are intellectuals, who are university type people, who are interested more in, in uh, you know, gender rights and in, uh, in gay rights than they're interested in, in protecting the jobs of the American worker. And that message uh, has sunk into white, working class people to the point where um, <clears throat> the states with the poorest amount of whites, the states where the whites are the poorest are the states that vote Republican most strongly. Um, and uh, whether that's poor people in West Virginia or poor people in Kentucky or poor, uh, working people in Ohio or working people or working white people in the Southern United States, um, that's the heartland of the Republican support. It seems so counterintuitive because the Republicans are the party of Wall Street, Republicans are the party of corporations, uh, the Rockefellers or the, uh, 
the uh, other huge uh, co-brothers and the other huge uh, you know, holders of wealth in the United States were always Republicans. And um, were always anti-union, who were always in favor of free trade, in favor of lower tariffs. And the Republican Party just transformed itself over time uh, to be a party that uh, is a bit suspicious of big business, a bit suspicious of Wall Street, um, and uh, uh, you know, a party which sees itself as being uh, America first, and, and you know, uh, and portraying the Democrats as a party of being bunch of globalists, internationalists, and cosmopolitans. So that message, true or not, penetrates into the American psyche and is the explanation for the enormous need that white working class men um, have uh, voted for Republicans far, far more than for the Democrats. Yeah. Well, I mean, Democrats are allowed, like anybody else, to to uh, sell whatever whatever policies they've done, and effectively, it is truly the the, the accusation that the Republicans are making, saying that the um, the green policies, the policies that the Democrats have had, especially to uh, downplay um, fossil fuel energies, coal, oil, and natural gas, that these policies which are being carried out in, in order to so-called, uh, uh, you know, save the planet, say, or you know, to lower the the uh, global warming crisis, but these policies are aimed at the American worker and are aimed to favor China, which is the world leader in, in uh, manufacturing of solar panels, which is the world leader in the manufacturing of electric cars, and uh, it's just a giant giveaway to China. Um, uh, at the, at the expense of the American worker who is making, who is in the, you know, the fuel business, the fossil fuel business, the coal business, the miners, the workers in the refineries, and also people who manufacture regular cars. Because to manufacture a gas-burning car takes a lot more labor than to manufacture an electric car. And um, the, uh, the fear of of the white people in the car industry is that these green technology is going to replace them as uh, and replace their jobs. However, however, as you stated, um, tr the transformation to green economy creates jobs, creates loads of jobs, far more jobs than are lost, you know, by mining coal. Uh, people installing solar panels. People doing turbines, um, the rebuilding of the electric grid to distribute electricity all around the U.S. Um, and electric car manufacturing, 
Uh, all of those things take place in the US and they've created hundreds of thousands of jobs and jobs in, scattered all over the country. Well, they're not just centered in one place, they're scattered everywhere because um, you know this idea of solar panels and, and uh, wind power is distributed all over the place. Um, so it's like you were saying, it's, it has been sold well. That, that, you know, for whatever reason, um, both parties are very skilled in, in, in uh, you know, creating uh, messaging. Um, but the messaging that the Democrats are creating hasn't quite caught on as far as the kind of basic manufacturing message is concerned. And, uh, uh, you know, so that's the, uh, that's the, that's one of the important things. I think another factor that's important to understand, it kind of correlates with this white poverty, but it's not the same, is that education is something which the, the strongest voters for the Republicans are the least educated people in the country. And, um, uh, that also means, in a sense, that the wealthiest people in the country are also not Republican voters. So the Republicans have really kind of zeroed in on this kind of middle class and lower middle class white voters who felt left behind, who feel left behind by the new economy, who feel left behind by the green transition, um, who feel left behind by the cultural changes that are happening in the United States, um, who are also feeling left behind by the decline of religion in the United States, because it's clear that even in the United States, which is such a religious country, that the amount of church attendance, weekly church attendance figures are down everywhere among all the denominations. And even the so-called evangelical Protestants, which are probably a very powerful group, even they are losing members. So um, people who, who feel that they are kind of the, the, the leftovers, or the, the last of the last, they are the ones who, who feel as if the world is passing them by. And they need something to hold on to. And you know the Republicans with their nationalistic uh, um, you know nationalistic message that everyone is in the US against the US that can invade we're being invaded by people coming into the US and also invaded by non-whites coming into the US and that your power and your votes are gonna all be diluted by these boards of of immigrants who are going to get citizenship and vote against your interests. So people who, who are already sort of on the on the, on the on the feeling insecure, these messages make them feel even more insecure. And then of course the response is to vote for the Republicans and for Mr. Trump in in, in particular. Um, and, so let's get back to the, I'll take some questions and comments. Let's get back to the, 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 the subject at hand, which is the referendum in Ohio today. So the reason this whole thing came about was that Ohio, and I started to say, it's transformed itself from a kind of mixed state into a Republican state. So in now in Ohio, there's a Republican governor 
There's a Republican Senate and a Republican House of Representatives. So they control the whole state of Ohio. And they passed one of the most restrictive abortion bills that you can imagine, which is a woman can only have an abortion in the first six weeks of pregnancy. That, <clears throat> that um, there is no exception for incest or for the woman's health uh, or for rape or anything else. And there was a case of a 10-year-old girl from Ohio who was, who was raped, who, who had to go outside of the state for an abortion. And um, so this is the law today in Ohio. Now, it's being appealed in court, but that's what the law is. So because of this, the Republic, the, the Democrats uh, or, or liberal people were so upset about this that they got together a petition to have a constitutional referendum. In order to get a referendum done, you need to have a huge proportion of people, of voters, eligible voters to sign uh, a document saying we want a referendum. I'm not exactly sure what that percentage is, but I think it's between five and 10% of all the eligible voters have to sign this, this petition, which means hundreds of thousands of people in the state of Ohio. And they got it, they got it signed. Um, and so there will be a referendum, and this referendum, the result of which will be um, a change in the constitution of Ohio. So it's not just changing the law that was passed by a legislature. This is changing the constitution to guarantee the right of women to control their own um, health care and to have a limit on abortion set to only uh, the period where the baby would be reasonably viable without a lot of medical care. Meaning, you know, when you're talking about an abortion lasting you know, into the 20-something weeks. And um, if history is any teacher, uh, these type of referendums where they've held, where they've held, have all passed. Uh, even in Kentucky, a conservative state, uh, one of these type uh, uh, referendums passed. So it's, I'm guessing that this will pass in Ohio as well. Yeah. That was, a, yes, they're, they're, yeah, they, what, what they did was, what, what, it's really mentioned, it's, what they did in Ohio, because they knew this was going to come up, because they knew this was going to come up, what they they tried to they start they they had another referendum uh, in the springtime, and that referendum was a question that they tried to sneak in when nobody was looking, sort of in the early summer, to say. If you want to change the constitution of Ohio in a referendum, you need 60% of the vote. That was so that was that was the question. Do you agree that you know changing the constitution of Ohio is so important that a 60% threshold is necessary? That was the referendum question. And people just turned out to say no. And they no side won. And I'll have to go back and tell you completely on a different subject. Uh, which you will be just to remember to, to remind you all when it came to the demerger referendums here in Quebec in Montreal, 
I think true, uh, John Sherrod committed a huge error in, he, he won the election against the PQ by promising that he would allow the emergent referendums. So far, so good. You remember that the PQ forced mergers of major metropolitan areas all over Quebec. But the real, the real sort of um, reason for that was to take away any autonomy uh, of bilingual municipalities in Montreal, like Cote Saint or like Hampstead, or Point Clear, or Westmount, or all the other ones. But you know, as a cover to that. They said, well, we're merging for, for economic and, and for efficiency reasons, reasons. We're merging all municipalities in Quebec. So St. Jerome got merged, all the little towns around them. Um, in Chicoutimi, they merged all the towns around Chicoutimi, uh, etc. Quebec City, they did some merging. They, they, in other words, said, look, it's more efficient to have a big city than to have a bunch of little small municipalities, each with a city hall, and each with their own garbage collection, and each with their own libraries, and each with their own everything. Why not just have one big city? The real reason was just to get rid of the autonomy that the English-speaking municipalities had here on the island of Montreal. So you might remember, we all lived through it. We were part of the city of Montreal. We were one of the boroughs here in Cote St. Louis. We were a borough of the city of Montreal. So Charette, this is by and large a very unpopular, um, uh, an unpopular decision um, because people, I mean, forget about the English speakers, but outside of Quebec, people liked the idea uh, that they were had their own little small towns that they were in control of. So Charette said, okay, we will allow emerging referendums. Okay. Um, the process was that 10% of the voters had to sign a register asking for a demerging referendum. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, just the way they did it in Ohio, just the way you, you don't want to go through the exercise of having a referendum and changing something major if so few people are even interested in it. So people have to be interested and show their interest to have this, um, this uh, referendum held. And many, many places didn't get 10% of the people to show up to sign the register. So if that's the case, fine. That means that they were happy with what they had. The mistake was, two mistakes. One was, he said, that 35% of the people had to actually vote in order for the vote to count. So that means that if 34% of the people showed up to vote and nobody voted no and everybody voted yes, it was still a vote for the no. Now, this idea that you need a certain percentage of turnout is quite fundamentally, it's undemocratic because what it's saying is that anybody who stays home also votes. And why should that be right? You know, if you don't want to vote, you don't vote. But they don't count. There's nowhere, you know, when 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 people don't vote, nobody comes and says, well, we assume that all the people who didn't vote wanted X. You know, that's what Sharon did. And um, the other mistake that I might, maybe said, well, 
if 35% of the people do show up to vote, if 50% plus one vote or whatever they vote for, that's the winning side. My thinking, the 35% should have been cast, forget that. And only count the people who actually show up to vote. But he could have said, we don't want 50%. He could have said, we want 60%. In other words, in order to change something that's so big, like the boundaries of the municipality, um, we need to make sure that a vast majority of the people are in favor of it. And, and the idea for that would be that the, the, the PQ said, well, all we need is 50% of the people in Quebec to vote, and then we'll secede. And they almost got it in the second referendum. But if Shara would have, would have set the tone, set the example, said, look, if you want to demerge a municipality, you need 60 or 65% of the people to vote to demerge. Well, how can Quebec afterward hold a referendum and say, well, to get out of all of Canada, we only need 50 You know, he could have made it a teaching lesson, and he didn't. And the fact that in some places, like Pierre Fon Roxborough and, and St. Laurent, they voted more than 50% to, to secede from Montreal, but they didn't get 35% of the voters to show up. And even how you counted which were the voters was something, because they used old lists that people could have died, people could have moved, you know, people could have changed addresses. And these people were counted as voters, but they may have died or not even live in that borough anymore. And so if, because they didn't vote, their vote was counted as a no. So that's why I'm saying that that system was a flawed system. Um, and I don't know if you knew this in advance and planned it in advance that way or not. But the, in the end of end of things, when all the tallies and all the votes were taken, um, it was the, the only the only towns or boroughs that voted to secede in Montreal were all the English-speaking ones, uh, except for Montreal East. Um, and some of the English-speaking ones didn't get over that bump to get to 35% of the vote, and so they remained in uh, in Montreal. But like a, a you know a wealthy suburb like Outremont, they didn't even get 10% of the people signing uh, the petition to have a referendum, so they just never had one. So anyway, that's that's how that that's how that. But that's just a slide you should talk about how. How it's important how we count uh, the results of a referendum, and in the first instance, as as um, <clears throat> as Myrna said here, that the first victory for the pro-abortion forces was to get rid of the sixty percent qualification that was snuck in. So today is the really the results that are happening today, and we'll see what they will be. Um, my guess is somewhere between 50, 50 and 60 percent of the people of, uh, against the um, proposal um, to uh, or in favor of the proposal to put to put this in the constitution that women have the right to have an abortion. So that's one of the elections today. There's a few other important ones. There's in Virginia, there is an election for the. Um, for the governor and for all the legislature. And uh, Virginia was uh, previously a, a Republican state. It changed into a Democratic state. Uh, but in the last election, the Republicans won. 
And um, so, you know, we'll see where that goes. It's a kind of a harbinger of what will happen in the next uh, year. Also of interest for people who are interested in crazy things, um, uh, in Mississippi, there's a, uh, also a, the whole legislature is up for election. And running for governor is a guy named Presley, for the Democrats, who is Elvis Presley's second cousin. Elvis Presley was born in Mississippi. And I don't know if you know this, but Elvis Presley was probably, um, he was probably, um, there is a group of people in the U.S. who are mixtures of indigenous people, blacks, and whites. And these people were more or less centered, not quite so much in Mississippi, but in, in the borderline states of Kentucky and Missouri. And they call something like the Gungeons. Melungeons, that's Melungeons, that's the big one. Melungeons. So a Melungeon is somebody who has that background. And uh, during the, the, the segregation times, these people all passed themselves off as white people, even though they were a mixture of people. And um, in, in the segregation times, if you were partly black, it meant you were black. So um, these people were kind of um, living sort of hidden lives, we call it, you know, to, to disguise the fact that they were in part black. And um, it, 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 that community is still around. And uh, the Presley family never said that they were Melungeons, but it's, 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 um, it's supposed that they could well have been. But let's just leave it this that. What's that? Yes, they were, they were, they were, this goes way back to the um, pre-American times, to, to when the British were ruling over the territory, and there was mixtures like that going on between Native people and whites and blacks. Um, another very famous uh, person running for office is um, in the Democratic Party, um, Mr. Phillips. Dean Phillips announced that he's running against Biden for the reasons that I mentioned at the beginning of the class, which is, you know, there's no huge enthusiasm for Biden. And he, he said some, some prominent Democrat should be running against Biden for the Democratic nomination. Uh, and he said, I'm not prominent, but I'm somebody. And, uh, I, and maybe if I jump into the ring, maybe other people will join me. Uh, you know, like uh, he, he, he liked the governor of Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, or maybe the governor of California, Mr. Lewis. But anyway, this guy, Dean Phillips, he's, he announced, he's a congressman from uh, Minnesota, from uh, Minnesota, and he announced that he's running. So the question is, he's related to somebody famous, not as famous as Elvis Presley, but his grandmother is, was famous. Who was she? Dean Phillips. Anybody, anybody have any ideas? It was Dear Abby. Oh, so yeah. Abigail Van Buren, who is Jewish, 
um, uh, was his grandmother, and he he is Jewish also, uh, and he is running because no one else is. The Democrats, of course, are not happy because they don't want to have a convention where you're going to have a split and all this type of thing. But on the other hand, um, he feels that you know somebody should get get up and say something and to challenge the president. And he said, I don't want to do it. So uh, that's his story. Um, now, let's see. Okay. Is there anything else? Is there any, there's nothing other, there's no other really big contests that are being challenged today. Uh, in the American uh, election calendar, well, we pretty well covered over the major ones. But it's, it's going to be the fact about this abortion is really going to be the most important plank that the American Democratic Party is going to run on in the next election. Because it's so clear that people see it as such a personal issue. That there is this anybody in the Republican state or Democratic state who doesn't know somebody or other who's had an abortion or wanted one, that um, uh, the trend of women supporting the Democrats and men supporting the Republicans, this, this abortion issue even widens that, that um, division. And um, it's um, it's definitely an amazing hope of Democrats. We'll leave it that, that way. That. So let me ask you if you have any questions, comments about uh, either about the Middle East or about uh, these elections, um, uh, or about anything else. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's because you know in the essence of this, the um let's put it like this, okay, the the conflict that we've been living through all our lives here is sometimes portrayed as a conflict um, of the English language versus the French language. And, um, you know, that's part of, that's part of the, uh, you know, that, that's part of what defines Quebec. Uh, certainly, according to Quebec's leaders, Defending the French language is paramount. But another way to put it would be not just defending the French language, but defending French Quebecers is paramount. It's not the same thing. But obviously, it's clearly not the same. One is a language, one is an ethnic. So if defending French Canadians is the primary goal of the government, they don't care. If an English-speaking people, the English-speaking person speaks good French, they're still an English-speaking person. Doesn't matter uh, how good their French is. And you know, for 
for a lot of the uh, political elite, that was always a really good question at hand. And the proof of that is to read about the, the uh, statistics that are being published and manipulated by the government, which says that shock of shocks today in Quebec, less than 80% of the population has French as their mother language. So if the idea was just a question of getting people to use French, it wouldn't matter whether someone's mother language is any. But their idea is, is that they're constantly, um, they're afraid to be overwhelmed by a migration, uh, by a birth rate, by uh, you know, a low birth rate in Quebec, that people who aren't French, or native French speaking people, this group of people will be somehow or other brought down by everybody else. So once that's in your mindset, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are an Anglophone who speaks French because you're still not one of them. Uh, I remember I took Quebec political science in, uh, when I was in India. We had a course where we were reading uh, Lionel Blue, the uh, owner of the metro station. And um, his writing was exactly that. He said, oh, we don't want outsiders speaking our language because they're just going to be based. We don't want outsiders coming into, penetrating into the walls of French Canadian society. We want to build up walls to keep them out because they'll just bring pollution, new ideas, Westernization, uh, who knows, you know, all kinds of cultural ideas and movies and all kinds of stuff that he didn't like. So that was the idea, that was the idea then. And some of that idea still, still sort of persists today. Um, it, 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 it persists, but not in an even level way because. Um, most of Quebec society knows that they need immigrants for work. They know that they, um, they you know, they've met by now. Uh, by now, most people in Quebec have met uh, people who are non-Quebec natives. They travel way more than they used to and they met people over there. There's intermarriage between native Quebec people and other people. So the society in that sense is more open than it was, is for sure, the Um, But that whole idea of, of, of uh, you know, it doesn't do Quebecers any good if Anglophones speak French. That's, that, you know, the, the, the assumption of English-speaking Quebecers is, well, they, they just want us to speak French, so we'll speak French. But that's not really the idea. You know, some people would even consider that a threat because now anglophones are bilingual and they could get bilingual jobs. Beforehand, it was only francophones who were bilingual in your day, or you know, in the, you know, up to the end of the fifties and sixties. There were hardly any anglophones who spoke French. But what do I need French for? What do I need them for? Um, obviously, now everything is the opposite. So. Uh, you know the the and, and unfortunately it's it's too it's 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 
is such an easy political um, move to act against the English-speaking community because we're so powerless. Um, and it's as if, well, you know, instead of, you know, the, the PQ's message was, well, if we can't be independent, at least we can beat up the handles. And that was that was how they sold their their sort of uh, you know their base, uh, Bill One Hundred One and all of those things. Because if the idea really was to protect and promote French, that has nothing to do with English. It's not as if the two are against war with each other. You want to protect and promote French, you know, look at look at the quality of French that's being put on on TV or put on in ads or 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 or, or all those kind of things. Um, uh, you know, um, that would be the that would be the, the way that you want to you know increase your education level. The, the education levels in Quebec are not all that high. The quality of French um, being spoken and being written uh, by the average population is not hugely high. So, you know, to my thinking, as a naive person, you want to protect and promote French, fine. Teach it better in school. That would be the way to do it. Um, you know, uh, you know, when you see ads, I see ads all over the place using all kinds of made-up words that are not French. So, okay, you want to do so, you know, complain about that, you know, uh, not about nothing to do with the English people. But anyway, that's what politics are, that's what our life is. And that isn't going to change, um, uh, you know, despite the fact that it seems so wrong and so illogical. Uh, I haven't seen, for example, the Quebec Conservative Party, which is trying to make a new mark in Quebec. If they want to make a new mark, I mean, it, it's so simple to say, look, let's do a study on Bill 101. What did it give us and what did it cost us? And let's find some university people to, to make an estimation of the billions of dollars that Quebec's economy lost because of Bill 101. It's funny, you know, they study everything. But you would think that one study would be so important that nobody would dare the French university to do a PhD on that subject. Because it's clearly, you know, would be breaking taboos. And um you know, if people saw what the cost was, we know what the cost is. We know what our children are. But, um, you know, most Quebecers don't really understand that. So, uh, you know, but <clears throat> on the other hand, they say, look, Quebec's doing fine. Quebec and Canada, of all things, we've always had a higher unemployment rate in Ontario forever. And now we don't. Our economy um, used to be one of the slowest growing in the whole country. Now it's not. So from an economic point of view, Quebec's doing relatively okay compared to everywhere else. Uh, we're still in the have-not society. We're still receiving equalization payments from the federal government, which I don't know what Mr. Plamino says was planning on for those equalization payments. Maybe he still wants them even though Quebec won't be, be part of Canada, but Quebec has used those equalization payments to balance its budget, to balance, but to you know, add to the treasury of, of the province. Anyway, I mean, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, um, 
it's a um, you know a fact of life um, that uh, people who were of a federalist uh, idea were happy that the PQ was finally being thrown into the garbage. And um, they only won three seats in the last election. One of them, Mr. Plumbo's seat, was won because his opponent was caught taking the election leaflets out of people's mailboxes, and so she was disqualified. And uh, so he, he won. And now he's more popular, according to the polls, than Mr. Uh, Legault. So, you know, sometimes whatever goes around comes in. And, um, you know, that's the way it is. Yeah. Such a wonderful question, because I thought of the same thing myself. The question was, when you look around the city, and, you know, you may be going to some place, but I go all over the place. Um, you know, I go, you know, all over the place, you know, just, just because I'm on my bike and because I go, you know, I see condos in this. I was in LaSalle the other day on Newman Boulevard saying, huh, look at this. Oh, they nothing. I see like a monster-sized condo project. So the question that she said is, who's buying all these condos? The population of the city of Montreal is not growing that much compared to um, um, cities like Calgary um, or some of the Toronto or, Bur or Burlington, Ontario or uh, Brampton, Ontario, or some of those type places. It's growing, thank goodness, but it's not growing a lot. Um, in, in Quebec, the fastest growing areas are the suburbs, the ring of suburbs around Montreal. So Vaudreuil in the last census was the fastest growing city in Quebec. Um, uh, you know, if the demand is there, you could say, I mean, you could say a lot of different things. You could say that people are buying these condos who don't live here. That would be one group of people. Like Chinese investors, they want a place to, uh, to you know, to hold on to. Maybe they want an insurance policy in case they have to leave China or Hong Kong. So they're buying condos. They start off in Vancouver and Toronto, and now they spread them with Montreal because they're cheaper. You know? So that's one, one group of people. Or you could say maybe, you know, there's families that live, you know, the children live with the parents for only so long. And, you know, when these children, parents finally kick them out, um, you know, they have to go live somewhere, so that's a place to go. Did you hear about the uh, court case in Italy where this mother has two 40-year-old sons living at home, working, working, living at home, not paying any money toward the food or upkeep or maintenance of the house? She went to court to kick them out because, you know, the family law says that a, a parent is responsible for their children. Yeah, the children. But a 40-year-old is not a child. You know, hey, you know, get off your rear end and go live somewhere else. And, you know, go, you know, why should I get married and have to, you know, put up with the wife when my mother cleans, cooks, uh, you know, makes my bed and washes my clothes and cooks for me. And and then I can just go out anytime I want and you know, do whatever I like. 
So, uh, you know, that's Italian society is like that. And not just Italian society, but other, other societies also are like that. Uh, some people just don't want responsibilities. And uh, that's the way to do it. So, so she went to work. She was published in all the major court cases. So it could be that, that the, you know, multi, multi, multi-generational households split up and people then have to go up. Uh, divorce is a major cause of uh, people needing new houses um, because where you once had one household, you don't have two households. So the population doesn't go up, but you need two households where you had one household. So that's another cause of this, uh, you know, of the, uh, of the condo, uh, the condo build. Um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for Quebec. It's a good thing for the city that these houses are being built. No matter who owns, they add to tax revenue of the city. Um, they, uh, when a person buys a home like that, they have to furnish it. They have to buy furniture. They have to buy carpeting. They have to buy washing machines, dryers, and everything else like that. So construction is really one of the major uh, motors of the economy. And once construction is over, then the real estate people come in. And after that happens, then all the furniture people come in and the maintenance people come in. So it's definitely a good thing to see a city growing. And especially the way if it grows the way it should be growing, meaning that you don't have this sort of carpet of suburbs that spread out forever, but you have more dense multi-story housing located next to metro stations and bus lines, things like that. So uh, that's a, a short answer to your question, but I've been fascinated by that subject myself. You know, I really uh, have been. Um, it's wonderful. I remember all of you who lived here during the 1990s. I remember going up to the top of Mount Royal and looking out and I didn't see a single building crane on the sky. There wasn't for 10 years, there wasn't a single crane anywhere in the city. And I remember they started off building this condo on Isabel and Coolbrook, this tiny little brick condo. Wow, new construction, can you believe it? Somebody has the faith to actually invest in a condo in, in Montreal, this is amazing. And you know that's um, you know that's the uh, that's the story. So we should be thankful for all of this. Is what I say. You know, and yes, it's true. Some people might get caught. Some people might get caught that you, buy, you borrow a lot of money to buy something. Your own life changes. You lose your job. You get sick. Something happens. It happens. You may have to take a loss because. Um, uh, you know, there's going to always obviously be a slowdown. And just maybe to finish off to say that the mortgage rates today, um, as we all know, here in Canada, we have a maximum pretty well of a five-year mortgage. And people who took out mortgages before, we'll call it uh, March 2022, that's when interest rates start to go up. So we're already kind of a year and a half into the high rates. So people who have three and a half years plus left on their mortgage, when those three and a half years finish, some people will be two and a half, some people 
one and whatever, they have to renew at today's rates. That's a big jump in their in their in their monthly expenses to look after their mortgage. In the US, they have 30-year mortgages. So that means the life of your mortgage is the life of, of, of your ownership. Um, the rate on a 30-year mortgage three weeks ago, I think eight percent. It dropped since then to somewhere around seven and a half, which is still way more than the two and a half and three percent or even two percent that people were getting, you know, um, up until 1922. It's not that long ago. So that's that is uh, uh, you know to, to to mention about why people are stressed in the US, that's part of it. That, 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 um, Inflation plus the stress of, of ownership leads to. Uh, I saw an interview, uh, maybe you saw it was on CBC News. This woman was crying on the TV. She said she makes $35 an hour and she can't manage to keep up her household expenses. $35 an hour is a reasonable amount. It's not a huge amount. Assuming that she works for a 40 or 37 hour week, it's like $1,200 a week. Which is, you know, somewhere around sixty thousand dollars a year before taxes. It's not a fortune, but it's not nothing like it. But if you're a one, you know, if you're a single woman looking after your children, that's like uh, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Anybody else? Yes, in the back over there. It's not a vote, it's a court case. It's a court case, it's ongoing. This is a most interesting court case based on, um, on the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution that was passed after the Civil War. And that amendment had a lot of different rules. In it. And the, the rules were basically that um, blacks would be entitled to have the same rights as anybody else as far as voting is concerned. Blacks would be considered citizens of the United States, which they weren't before. And also said that anybody who was involved in the insurrection against the US is not eligible to run for public office. The aim of that was to say that the Confederate um, uh, officials and the generals in the army, who were so popular, um, would not be eligible to run for office in the United States because they they were insurrectionists. But then the question becomes, well, what is an insurrectionist? And how do you define that person? So, for example, if you wrote a letter to the editor of the Richmond, Virginia Star and said, you know, I, I support uh, our valiant uh, Confederate uh, uh, army is that being an insurrectionist? If you uh, donated your time uh, and volunteered and raised money and got bandages for the Confederate soldiers, does that make you an insurrectionist? So um, they had court cases about this, and they really did decide these cases on a pretty broad, uh, pretty broad spectrum. So, in other words, if you showed support for the secession, sounds like Michael, but it's not Michael. Um, if you showed support for the secession and somebody complained about it, you could be disqualified for running for office. 
So it doesn't mean that you necessarily had to be invading uh, Washington, D.C. as part of the Confederate Army. But, you know, um, so, the, so somebody took up the case, Trump is an insurrectionist. He tried to overthrow a legitimately elected government in 2020 by arranging for a false slate of electors that would falsely claim that they represent the states that they say they do. Um, and this is an insurrection, not counting the actual physical insurrection that he encouraged against the against the Capitol building on January the 6th. But you know, the whole idea of saying you, that the President Biden was not elected legitimately and I am going to replace him, that's an insurrection. So so somebody in Colorado said, you know what? Colorado says that you're not allowed to run for office if you're an you if you have you know promoted an insurrection against the United States, and I think that's what Trump did. So let's have a case about that. So what Trump did is he said, this is ridiculous. I'm asking that the case be dismissed, but it wasn't. The judge ruled, you know what? This, you know, they may have a point. I want to hear the case. That's where we're at right now. So they're they're hearing the case. So if 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 you know Colorado is a state which is to, again the opposite used to be a Republican state is now a Democratic state, just like Ohio was the other way around. Um, so it's possible that Trump could get disqualified from putting his name on the ballot in Colorado. Possible. Interesting, but possible. So listen, I want to thank everybody again. Uh, so I'm so impressed that on a crappy, windy, cold, rainy day that forced me to take my car when I wanted to be on my bike, um, that you all came here. I'm, I'm really so thankful. And uh, I'll see you all next week for my uh, my final uh, week. So thanks for coming.